Okay, if you have your Bible with you, open it to the 28th chapter of the book of Acts, the last chapter in the book of Acts. As, as uh, we conclude this series that we've been uh, considering each week going through this, this book, Acts of the Apostles. It was December 2013, and Dee and I had gone to Nebraska to visit our son, Lance, and his wife, Eileen, and our grandchildren, Colt and Callie. Why we went in December, I have no idea. We won't do that again, you know. Oh, my goodness. And so one night, it was, the temperature was well below zero, and we decided to go to a movie. And Frozen was playing. We thought that appropriate. And so we went to see the movie Frozen, but I knew that also in an adjacent theater that night uh, was being shown The Hobbit, The Desolation of Smaug. It was the sequel to The Hobbit. And uh, The Hobbit had been really exciting. It was all a prequel to The Lord of the Rings trilogy. And so in The Hobbit, there was a dragon named Smaug who had risen up and terrorized the people. He was in control actually, at the end of the movie, The Hobbit. And so the guys, we, they went, the gals went to Frozen. We went to the desolation of Smaug, and the movie begins with this dragon firmly in control. In fact, he has routed the dwarves out of Lonely Mountain, where they had been mining for gold and, and smelting it down, and uh, they had been traumatized by this dragon, the peoples of Lake Town lived in terror and fear of the dragon. And Bilbo Baggins, the hobbit, is going to lead the dwarves back to reclaim Lonely Mountain. And they have all kinds of adventures along the way. They get lost in the forest. They're ensnared by giant spiders in the forest. They're ambushed by wood elves and those creatures, the orcs. Uh, they get to Lake Town. And they promised the peoples of Lake Town that, that they'll be able to share in the treasure of Lonely Mountain if they partner with them to reclaim it. And it's while they're there that they discover the black arrow, which has been hidden for years, which has the capacity to slay the dragon. And there's a launching mechanism there in Lake Town. And so they talk about that. And then Bilbo leads the dwarves and some folks on toward Lonely Mountain. And they get there, and they find a hidden entrance into the mountain, and they get inside, and there are just piles of gold in there. And there's the old smelting equipment, and, and there's the dragon. There's Smaug sleeping on one of those piles of gold. And it's going okay uh, until somebody slips and makes a lot of noise, and the dragon awakens. And the dragon chases them all over in the interior of the mountain, and they're thinking, we've got to rekindle the forge, and we can smelt this gold, melt it down, and cover this dragon with gold. And they tried to do it, but it didn't work. And so Smaug, the dragon, stumbles out of the mountain and takes flight, and Bilbo watches in horror as he flies toward Lake Town, ready to destroy the city. And you know what happened next? On the screen it said, to be continued. <laughs> what? Oh no, I should have seen that one coming. It's got another sequel. In fact, that movie was made for a sequel. It was obvious. 
When Luke wrote the book of Acts, it was really a letter to his friend Theophilus. When you get to the end of chapter 28, it feels kind of like that. It's like, what? This is it? I mean, Paul is in prison. He's been languishing in prison for two years. The Roman Empire is strong. The Jews are filled with hatred toward this sect called Christians. What's going to happen to Paul? What's going to happen to the empire? What's going to happen to the Jewish people? And what's going to happen to the church? Because the dragon is still alive. Revelation calls Satan that dragon of old, and he's on the loose. And he wants to destroy that fledgling church and every individual that is associated with it and destroy any semblance of outreach from that church. So you leave the end of the book of Acts and realize this was made for a sequel. And in fact, that's what I want us to understand this morning. Uh, As I've set forth in your bulletin, Acts, closing scene, sets the church of every generation up for an exciting sequel. You see, every generation of Christians has not only the opportunity, but a responsibility to continue the story that was began with that early church. We are the sequel in this story, and uh, we need to understand that we can slay the dragon in our generation, that devil of old, Satan, who has designs on destroying the lives of people, destroying families, and decimating the growth of the church. We have the power to do it. But we need to take advantage of what God's given us in order to do so. And I believe some of those keys for our generation are set forth in this last chapter of the book of Acts. And so let's take a look at them. There's an outline in your bulletin. Here's the first. Our generation will slay the dragon if we go out of our way to support each other. Charlie shared the message last weekend and and, uh, he had us in the early part of chapter 28 where after the shipwreck, Paul and the sailors and the soldiers, the few believers that are with him are on the island of Malta and they spend some time there. It's an amazing story there. But then Luke picks it up in verse 11 and says, At the end of three months, We set sail on an Alexandrian ship which had wintered at the island. Remember, it had been an Alexandrian ship they were on because they were carrying wheat to Rome from Egypt. And he said this ship had the twin brothers for its figurehead. It was common practice in those days on those ships to put Greek gods. And the twin brothers would have been Castor and Pollux, the sons of Zeus, who were the guardians of the seafarers. And uh, he says, after we put in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. That wasn't Syracuse, New York. That was Syracuse on Sicily. Okay, I got a map here. And I can show you. There's Malta, where they shipwrecked. And uh, then they set sail after three months and came up to Syracuse, uh, capital of Sicily at the time. And sailed from there to Regium, Luke said, and then up to Puteoli. And uh, it was here. They stayed for seven days. And Paul was given freedom by the centurion to spend some time with Christian brothers and sisters there 
uh, soldier would have been chained to him at the time. But the centurion evidently had other business. But Rome is way up here, and I want you to notice three taverns or three inns, as it's called in some versions, and the Appia Forum along the way up there, because we'll come to that in just a moment. Meanwhile, up in Rome, uh, word had gotten out that Paul was on his way. And Luke says, the brethren up in Rome, when they heard about us, came from there as far as the market of Appius and three inns to meet us. And, and when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. Interesting. Here's the man who weeks earlier had been aboard that ill-fated ship that was about to wreck. They'd been in a storm for 14 days just cascading through the sea. And he called them all together and encouraged them. He was the man of encouragement then. Uh, he had told them to take courage, that God had shown him that they were going to make it through unharmed, though the ship would be lost, that they were to eat for their strength, and they were encouraged by him. But now, he's the one that really needs encouragement. Chained, walking toward Rome, probably hot and tired, thirsty, and facing an uncertain future. And here come fellow believers from Rome. Some walked 43 miles to the Appian Market, some 33 miles to the three taverns to meet him. And he was encouraged. He thought, they care. Uh, they're here for me. They probably brought food and sustenance for him, but they brought prayer, they brought real encouragement, and his spirits were lifted for what lie ahead. I think that's essential uh, in the church because at any given time, there are people around us who need encouragement. They may not be in chains, although some are in prison, but some are maybe at home uh, in the chains of illness or despondency because of a loss of a loved one. Some people that we love maybe in the chains of addictions or maybe chained to unforgiveness from the past and uh, just need us to come alongside of them and encourage them. That's the responsibility of we who are followers of Christ. And when that happens, Satan's grip is loosened. The dragon is slain. Rose Lariosa sings on our Friday night worship team, or she did, until a couple of months ago, when on a given Saturday she had an emergency open-heart surgery. Her aorta had burst. We about lost her. And uh, it's been a tough go for her, but she's doing pretty well. I talked with her yesterday. She had sent a card this last week to a, a number of people. And uh, in the card and in the letter in it, she apologized that it was a mass update letter to everybody, but there had been so many cards sent to her. And she says, here there's a personal note, which is nice, but then I want to read this one paragraph to you. She says, thank you so much for your Get Well Soon card. Upon receiving it, it overwhelmingly best blessed me with your love, care, and support. I must admit that when I just got home from the hospital, I didn't even have the strength to walk and felt a despondency as to how long I was going to be in this condition. But your card came in the mail, and it was like a big hug from you saying, 
I'm, we're praying for you. Don't give up. Just keep on keeping on with your walk in the Lord. He's right there with you. I cannot even begin to tell you how much your card meant to me. In these days of instant communication through high-speed technology, like email, Twitter, Instagram, chat, Facebook, etc., receiving a card through the mail is such a beautiful way of communicating a heartfelt, loving message. Let me tell you, the time and effort it takes to mail a card. Select a card, write out a personal note in it, address the envelope, put a stamp on it, put it in the mailbox, is so much appreciated, and I don't take any of that for granted. Isn't that neat? You're to be commended, uh, so many of you who know Rose, for reaching out to her in that way. It encouraged her when she needed some real encouragement. Does it always have to be a written note? No. An email can be fine. Uh, a phone call, a, a note is great. A, a visit is even better. It depends on the circumstances, doesn't it? But here's the thing. Just like those folks from Rome went out of their way to encourage the Apostle Paul, we have to go out of our way if we're going to encourage those who are needing encouragement. We're busy, right? Uh, we get distracted. And uh, sometimes... I get oblivious to what's happening in the lives of people around me. But we have to think about that, we have to care, and we have to make an effort to go out of the way to encourage them. But it's huge, the difference that it makes. Now this is kind of on a lighter note, I suppose, compared to the heavier note I want to move to just momentarily. And that relates to what happened in Charlottesville uh, last week and in the aftermath of that. That's been a horrible blight on the life of our nation, what transpired there and all the rhetoric and all the hatred that was exposed there. I really believe personally that there is just a lot of hatred in uh, those groups, uh, racism, bigotry, uh, animosity, uh, I do believe personally that it's on both ends of that spectrum. I think both are kind of minorities in our country. But here's my concern, is that when, when people across the country see that, we can have a reaction to that. It can produce anger in our own hearts and hatred toward peoples or toward groups of people, when in reality, uh, what we need to do as the church is be the people who shine the light of love and forgiveness. In fact, uh, Heather Heyer's father, she was the girl killed uh, in that riot in Charlottesville. As a memorial service for her, maybe you heard her father, uh, he stood up and talked about it. He said, people need to stop hating and they need to forgive each other. I include in that, in forgiving the guy that did this. He don't know no better. I just think of what the Lord said on the cross Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I believe that's true. With people that are filled with racism and bigotry and hatred, they don't know what they're doing. They're not the enemy. They're victims of the enemy. And we need not embrace the hatred, but rather uh, embrace the Lord and shine forgiveness and love toward them and reach out to them with truth as well as with grace. You know, there's so much hoopla and hype about the 
coming eclipse tomorrow across the nation. In fact, uh, I've got family members from Oregon to Nebraska to Nashville that are right in line with this eclipse. And they're all talking about it. And there's so much been written about it and such. Uh, My dad told me, he said, my neighbor is going to set up chairs in his backyard. He wants to charge people $100 to sit in those chairs. <laughs> I said, you think they'll pay it? He said, I don't know. There's people from all over the world here. Well, people are excited, and I suppose there's reason to get excited about a two-minute uh, two and 43-second eclipse. But they're going to watch the light of the sun obliterated and come from all over the world to do that. And I thought, there's an analogy here. We may or may not be aware of it, but I think with all the division and the hatred that has emanated, the, the light of the Son of God is being obliterated in our nation. And we, the church, need to stand up and shine that light into those places of darkness. And as we do that, Satan, the dragon of old, will be slain in our generation because we support one another in our need of encouragement and in our need to offer encouragement. Secondly, our generation will slay the dragon if we sacrifice willingly to reach lost people. Luke continues in verse 16. says, When we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. Paul, as a citizen of Rome, was given some, a degree of freedom. He was able to rent his own quarters, paid for by other believers, no doubt. But he would have been chained to a Roman soldier, in fact, 24-7. And and they would have changed guards every four hours, an opportunity uh, for him to witness to them. And I know many of them would have come to Christ. But after three days, Paul called the leading Jews of the city of Rome to come to him, and he wanted to explain what had happened. He told him the story, how he'd been arrested in the temple courts, how uh, he'd almost been beaten to death by his fellow countrymen, and then how the Romans had intervened and saved his life, and they tried him, those three trials, and, and uh, they found no cause for death, and so they were going to release him, but he knew that would be the end of it, and so he said, I had no choice but to appeal to Caesar, and that's why I'm here. And they said, well, we haven't heard anything from Jerusalem about you. Uh, No letters have come. And we want to hear your story. But they said, we've heard this sect of Christians is spoken of against everywhere. Well, it had been. Remember, this is about A.D. 61. Well, in the late 40s, there was so much division in Rome uh, among the Jews over Jesus, the Messiah, that the Emperor Claudius had banished the Christians from the city. And those were Jewish Christians. He, he kicked them out of the city, as, as well as Gentiles. And that was the late 40s. He died in A.D. 54. And then those Christians filtered back in, and among them the Jewish Christians. And so that's why these Jews talking to Paul said, well, we've heard bad things about this sect. And so... He said, for this reason, I requested to see you, to speak with you, for I am wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. Paul knew that Jesus was the hope of Israel. He was the long-awaited Messiah. 
He was the one the prophets had spoken of. And so he said he wore this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. When they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers. And he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. Wouldn't you have loved to have heard his explanation from the Pentateuch, the Torah, the first five books of our Old Testament, and the prophets as to why Jesus was the Messiah? Well, it must have been inspirational, informative, but it says some of them were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. Isn't that interesting? I mean, he made the case. It would have been amazing to hear that. And some couldn't help but be persuaded, but others, it said, would not believe. And I think that's the case today. There are some who are persuaded by the gospel. Others simply don't want to hear about it because of their prejudices, their present lifestyle, or whatever. And they don't want to even hear about it, and they would not believe. Well, a big disagreement broke out between them that were there. And they started arguing And then Paul, he spoke directly to them from their prophet, Isaiah, who'd lived 700 years earlier, wrote the book of Isaiah. And he said to them, the Holy Spirit rightly spoke through our prophet Isaiah when he said to your ancestors and mine that you have ears, but you don't hear. You have eyes, but you don't see. Your hearts have become dull And you can't even understand or receive him. But if you'd open your eyes, if you'd open your ears, if you'd open your hearts, he would return and heal you. He wasn't making a lot of points with with them at that point. And then it gets worse. After he'd insulted them, he said this. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will also listen. Remember, that's what got him in trouble in the temple courts when he talked about going to the Gentiles. And so he added insult to injury here. You know, in speech classes, some of you have taken speech classes, I'm sure there's a class along the way where they talk about identifying with your audience, uh, ingratiating your audience when you begin your speech. Um, Sometimes uh, we'll have guest speakers here. And you probably noticed that they'll compliment us as a church or they'll talk about our islands and the beauty here well they're connecting with us I enrolled in speech class in college but I dropped out after the first class because when they asked me to stand and tell my name and where I was from my tongue swelled up and I started sweating and I said forget this and I withdrew passing because I knew I'd fail but anyway Paul missed that class he skipped class that day he, he, he wasn't ingratiating himself to these people. He was insulting them and then saying, I'm going to the Gentiles because they're going to believe this message. Why did he do it? Well, he said, I'm wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. In other words, Paul was willing to risk his reputation, his popularity, his acceptance by these and other peoples because he knew they needed to hear about Jesus. That Jesus was the hope of Israel and of these people. We've heard so much about North Korea, especially here on the islands. Uh, He's talked about uh, the range of his missiles lately. And 
There was a World magazine that came out recently and talked about the North Korea conundrum. But there's a fascinating story in here about some of the refugees that have fled from North Korea and what they're doing to reach back into North Korea. Some of them are actually going back in, amazingly, smuggling in USBs uh, or hard drives to get them information about the West and about the gospel. Some of them are broadcasting and sharing their testimony uh, on Far Eastern Broadcasting Network and other uh, stations broadcast back into North Korea at the risk of their very lives. Some of them are putting together bags of thousands of leaflets and attaching them to balloons that are going to float over North Korea and come down. And these people could go on and enjoy life, but no, they're risking their lives to reach back to those that they know are suffering. Now that's a powerful picture of sacrificing to reach people who need to be rescued. And I thought, wow, what, what about me? What about us? Paul said, I wear this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. And I thought, what chains am I willing to wear to reach people? We probably don't have to go to prison, but uh, some of us might realize that it's going to be a challenge to do so. It's going to take some sacrifice. Some people may say, well, I wear a chain with a cross on it, and that's a sacrifice. And I don't diminish that. It, it actually could be in some circumstances and situations. But sometimes it, it means that we're going to have to lose our reputation for taking a stand for Jesus, telling others about the transformation he's brought about in our lives, not being obnoxious, not being intrusive into people's lives, but to be relational and intentional about reaching people, and it's not going to be easy. Sometimes we think, well, uh, I'm afraid to do so. Well, Paul may have had some fear too. But the conviction, the commitment to care for the lost overshadowed that. And in the process, the dragon's grip on lost people is broken and he is slain. So it's, it happens as we support one another. It happens as we sacrifice to reach lost people. And then one more key. Our generation will slay the dragon if we gather that we might scatter with good news. Luke concludes this chapter by saying, And he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. Paul turned his prison into a pulpit. He was a captive, but the gospel was not held captive because he refused to be bound by his circumstances. In fact, it was an opportunity to proclaim the gospel in a way that he wouldn't have had otherwise. Think about it. If he'd been on the outside, he probably would have been killed by now. He sure couldn't have spoken openly about his faith. He wouldn't have had the opportunity to write the letters that he did in that prison cell or that house that he rented. He had time on his hands now, and he wrote letters to the church in Ephesus, the church in Colossae, the church in Philippi, letters that comprised parts of our New Testament. He wrote the letter to Philemon in our New Testament. 
because uh, he needed, he was forced to take a break there as well as minister to the people that came. Sometimes we think, I'd share with people, but I'm in difficult circumstances. Rings a little hollow, doesn't, doesn't it? When we think about Paul's circumstances, what we need to understand is that Paul's circumstances and ours are ordained of the Lord. He has us right where he wants us. In an opportunity, now we by our free will have brought ourselves to some of these places, but it's in those places that we can be used by God to speak to those around us, to reach those around us. And instead of using it as an excuse, we need to use it as an opportunity and a platform to reach out to those in our family, those uh, that we work with, go to school with, those in our neighborhoods that need to know Jesus. And he will use us to reach people that would never otherwise have been reached if we'll avail ourselves of that opportunity. But here's the thing. The church in Rome grew not because they gathered in those rented quarters, but because they scattered from them. Paul had no illusion that the church in Rome was going to be built in those quarters. Otherwise, they'd have thrown up a sign out front. Uh, church service every Sunday morning. They'd have passed out leaflets in the community. Come here, this guy, Paul. Uh, they had a sign, healing service every Sunday night. That would have been big. Uh, but no, he knew that it wasn't going to be there they'd plant the church. It would be here that they would equip the church to go out and to share this message. And they'd share that message in the marketplace, in the streets, in the homes, in the habitations of the peoples of Rome, whether they be citizens or slaves, and they would see the church explode because they had scattered after they'd gathered. I think in the American church, the contemporary American church, there's too much emphasis on the gathering and not enough on the scattering. It becomes about the facilities or the air conditioning, or lack thereof. It becomes about the music in a given church, or the pastor or preacher in a given church. It never was about that with the Apostle Paul. It was about the message of Christ that could transform people's lives. And it still is today if we recognize that's what brings people to salvation. Hearing the good news. And there are so many people that are never going to come into this worship center until... Somebody shines that light in a conversation and shares their story and, and talks to them about Jesus. When the church is unchained, it goes out into the community and reaches people in every strata of the society. That's who we are, and that's who we are called to be. And that first century church got it. They understood that. So as this chapter ends, what happened to the Apostle Paul? Well, I mean, some scholars think that he was executed shortly hereafter. Uh, more predominantly, scholars believe that he was released and that he had a few more years of ministry. He was rearrested and in 67 AD executed by the Emperor Nero. What happened to the Roman Empire? Well, we know that it was eventually overcome by the church, which eclipsed it, and became predominant in the empire because these Christians acted uh, as the church in their culture. In fact, that's what our generation needs to understand if we want to slay the dragon. I 
heard a guy speak a while back, and, and he talked about the nuns and the duns. You've probably heard about those, but he added a third category. We know the nuns are those who, they've never been to church. They have no background or understanding of Christianity. I heard some folks that went to the play last night were asking, what's this about Jesus washing the feet of Judas? No idea. Those are the nuns, never been to church or had a background. The duns are those who have been to church, but they've checked out. In fact, that young guy that I talked to after the play said, yeah, I grew up in church, but I stopped going when I realized the Bible had just been written by men and got into the arts and threw all that aside. That's a dun, okay? There are a lot of duns in our culture as well that need to be reached and help to understand the truth. But then this guy added the third category. There's the nuns, there's the duns, and there's the buns. And he said, that's those of us who sit on our buns in church and never go talk to those people. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, good point. The first century church didn't do that. They got out there and they talked to them. And I want to challenge you and myself to become part of that exciting church. And here's what, how I want to challenge you. A few weeks from now, we're going to have two vision weekends back to back. The first vision weekend, we are going to look back over this past year and celebrate what God has done in and through this church family. And there have been some amazing things. It is a cause for celebration. That'll be the 8th and 10th of September. The following weekend, the 15th and 17th, we're going to look forward and anticipate what God wants to do and believe, we believe he will do in our church in this coming year. And I'll give you a hint. Part of it has to do with reaching the lost people around us. And here's where I want to challenge you. Between now and then, mid-September, I want you to begin today, this week, praying about and thinking about where you are, not in some rented prison cell, but wherever you are and God has you there, who's around you that doesn't know Jesus? Who in your family or workplace or neighborhood needs to know the Lord. Pray about it, think about it, and start writing those names down. Come Vision Weekend, part two, uh, at the conclusion of that service, I want to invite those of you who will commit yourselves to reaching out to those folks in this coming year to come forward, and we'll have elders and we'll have staff members up front to anoint you with oil and commission you to go and be missionaries to those folks that God has put on your heart. In the meantime, you can be praying, identifying them, and then begin to pray for them. You need to know, every conversation you have, every prayer that you offer for lost people, every act of kindness that you do can slay the dragon in their lives and bring them to know the Savior. Max Lucado wrote a book called Outlive Your Life. And he said that the early church understood this. Here's what he said. The Jerusalem church understood this. How else can we explain their explosion across the world? What began at Pentecost with the 120 disciples spilled into every corner of the world. Antioch, Corinth, Ephesus, Rome. The book of Acts, unlike other New Testament books, has no conclusion. That's because the work has not been finished. There's no conclusion to the book of Acts. But there's a sequel 
in every generation. And we need to understand, folks, in our generation, we are the sequel to the book of Acts. As we reach our generation for Christ, as we reach those around us with the gospel message. And so let's give ourselves to that and realize God lets us write the story, continue the story that'll ring through the ages forever in eternity. Let's bow for prayer.